My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Sing it! Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Welcome to the Damnificast, a podcast about uh, two guys watching the show Damnation. Uh, we're taking a break from the Magnificast this week to give you guys a little sneak preview of what we got going on our Patreon uh, this summer. So this summer, um, we're going to do a special podcast where we watch TV and talk about it, but not just any TV. We're going to watch TV about s- socialism and communism vague- vaguely, I guess. Uh, so first up, uh, we're going to watch the show called Damnation. Uh, it's on Netflix. Um and we got a lot to say about it. Uh, but before we do, we're going to talk about a few housekeeping things with um, the other podcast that we do, The Magnificast. The the real Magnificast, if you haven't heard, has a Patreon. And we've had so many extremely great and faithful supporters over the last two and some odd years now. And for most, most of that time, we've basically just been occasionally updating uh, the Patreon with some early episodes now and then. But we haven't had too much time, really, to sit down and figure out a way to create some more content, and now we do. So this summer, we are going to try to boost some of that up in a couple of ways. Uh, one is doing this podcast where we're basically just going to bullshit about TV shows that we think are relevant. There's a ton of shows that people keep telling us to watch. Uh, Matt has seen most of them. He's a very good, diligent television scholar. Uh, but I have seen almost none of them. Uh, so we're going to try to do our homework. Uh, we're starting out with the, with Damnation. Maybe we'll get around to like the Americans later or something like that. But basically, we're just going to put this on the Patreon and uh, see how this low effort, low quality podcast can uh, really, really turn out. Uh, so that's going to be available for everybody donating to Patreon at whatever level. And for people who donate at the high, high monthly price of $2 a month, We'll get an opportunity to be part of a book club that we're going to do this summer. We did a book club when we first started the podcast, and it was really fun. We read some Paul Virilio, uh, and we're trying to bring that back. So this year, we are going to talk through the book Communism and the Bible by Jose Miranda. We did an episode about it a long time ago, but this gives us a chance to dig into it. It's pretty short and really fun to read, and it's not, like, extremely difficult. And I think that, you know, it has a lot of, like, really relevant themes that people would probably want to dig into a little bit more. So we thought we'd set aside some time just for this community to go through and read it together, see what we can come up with, and just try to engage and and build a bit more of a a reading community around the show. So if you're interested in that, we are going to launch it about the second week of July or so. Uh, We'll give you more details as it goes, Uh, but heads up, you can get on the train early at patreon.com slash themagnificast. Yeah, it should all be really fun. Um... Okay, so you might be thinking, hey, I've never seen the show Damnation before. Um, Should I stop listening to this podcast now? And the answer is no, of course not. Because before we talk about the show that you've never seen, we're going to do a good Reddit question. Um, And that is going to be entertaining enough for just the entire episode. (laughs) Uh, Alternatively, if you hate Reddit questions, now's the perfect time to queue up that first episode of Damnation. (laughs) That's right. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. So, Dean, I have this great great our Christianity question for you. And I'm pretty sure only you can answer this one. And mm-hmm. uh, everyone out there in our Christianity needs your help because guess what? This one uh, was posted six years ago and no Ooh. one gave a very good answer to it. So um, this is six years ago. makes me nervous because it could have been me. <laughs> I don't think so. 
<laughs> on this one, All I right. don't think you did it. No. <laughs> Let me take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so here we go. If Jesus could be cloned, would he still <laughs> be the son of God? They go on to write. I've never heard anything against cloning with a biblical source. I wonder why. I understand cloning doesn't recreate an individual's personality, but the DNA of Jesus has that of God due to the Immaculate Conception. <laughs> so like the title says, would this clone be the son of God as well? Or just in an... Okay, and uh, uh, parentheses, sick. An anomination. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, he would definitely be an anomination. I think we can we can put that just on the board you can throw a dart at that just stick that there okay um i want to circle back to the question at hand but before we do i just want to deal with the implicit question here which is that this clone in theory the dna of god god's self uh has every all the powers of jesus christ uh that's what i assume god dna gives you magic powers that's how it works Uh, in the show supernatural so i think (laughs) you're good on that one yeah so the authority checks out um, but the, the thing I most love is that it doesn't give you the personality of Jesus. And I just love the idea of a complete and total burnout, just having all of the ability of Jesus Christ and like turning all the taps in his apartment to wine, mm-hmm. just taking wine showers, drinking wine from, from the faucet, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> using the wine toilet, just because why wouldn't you, uh, you have the ability multiplying blows and fishes just so you don't have to go to work. Uh, burnout Jesus sounds very good. Yeah, I'm uh, not against it. That's for sure. So, okay, um, they so we got um, you know all of the guys from Jurassic Park out there, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, they're digging up um, fossils and whatnot. But uh, one time though, they get it wrong and they got some of Jesus' blood from something. Well, they find the mosquito that you know took a bite out of Jesus and it's caught in that amber. That's right. Okay, so that's how they get it. And now we have uh, clone Jesus. So, Dean, you... Jesus, DNA! (laughs) So you think that it would just be... Jesus would be... uh, Have all the powers of Jesus, but not the personality, is what I'm hearing from you and your your perspective here. Well, I'm just taking the question at face value, right? These are the terms that we've been given. Yeah. That cloning, in this person's imagination at least, and I think the science checks out, uh, gives you all all the physical DNA attributes, but none of the, you know... None of the personality. Okay. None of the the real the real jive and jazz of what it means to be a person. Right. Okay. That makes sense to me. Now, I don't want to I don't want to uh, get lost in this question too much, but here's my contribution to the conversation here. Uh, mm-hmm. Why stop at one Jesus clone? <laughs> that is a good question. What if you had an army of burnout Jesuses? Mm. That's that is a good question. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you one answer that somebody said. Um, yeah. Okay. And this is one answer to the question. I'm going to have a hard time reading it. So <laughs> normal birth when man seed. <laughs> <laughs> normal birth is the worst episode of Garfield and friends. Normal birth when man seed fertilized woman's egg. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Jesus was woman's egg and God's seed, not semen per se, but God's still father. So think about that. Okay, yeah, we've got that. That is a big <laughs> wrench. It's a huge wrench. I wouldn't even know where to find God's seed if I was looking. Well, uh, well, uh, cloning scientists out there, just um, you know, maybe you can do this, but please don't. If one thing, if if I've learned one thing from Jurassic Park, it is just please don't do this. Okay, hold on. I'm having either a stroke or a memory of being an evangelical where there was a book in our church library that took this very question. Oh my gosh, I need to Google something. 
Jesus clone, Christian fiction. I'm positive this is real. Um, Christ clone trilogy. Yep, here it is. I found it. Uh, Wikipedia. The Christ clone trilogy is a science fiction trilogy by the American novelist James Beausigneur, dealing with the end of the world by presenting a fictionalized version of Christian eschatology. Hmm. Uh, compared. <laughs> here you go. Beausigneur's writing is compared to much more name recognized contemporaries, such as Tom Clancy, for its attention to detail. <laughs> I wonder who wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> so your church had this one huh uh yeah um i never read it but someone had recommended it to me here you go the trilogy starts with in his image where living human cells discovered on the turin shroud ah oh, perfect are used to clone a child named uh christopher goodman, christopher <laughs> goodman. <laughs> the book follows goodman's story by telling the tale of decker hawthorne a journalist and the main character of the series, uh, based on Tom Glancy's my guess. Among the main events covered in the book are the creation of Christopher, the rapture, and Christopher's progress to becoming a key figure in the United Nations. Oh, Took a boy. real turn. Got really diplomatic. I feel like he really backed off the interesting thing about the story. Right. So, okay, this guy, this Tom Clancy wannabe... <laughs> Yeah, he writes a story where they clone Jesus and they call him Christopher Goodman, which is, I mean, <laughs> so on the nose. I hate this. Uh, but instead, the only thing he can figure out for him to do is to join the United Nations. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I love it. Decker love Hawthorne so is also a name to be uh, just to really consider. Yeah, it really is. Um gosh there's so much I, I there's a part of me that just feels like we need to scrap the whole damnificast and just start a reading podcast that's all about the christ clone trilogy <laughs> maybe in the future that could be a maybe a, a patreon unlockable at a thousand dollars a month oh my god because that that is how much it would cost for me to read these books can i really quickly read to you decker hawthorne's biography his character biography <laughs> yeah please decker is the main protagonist in the series decker is an is a vietnam veteran who becomes a journalist and world traveler <laughs> Good-natured but ambitious, Decker grows more and more successful throughout the series and ends up as chief of staff for the Secretary General of the United Nations. The Secretary General happens to be Christopher Goodman, his foster son, and prophesied Antichrist <laughs> of the Revelation. So so I'm confused, though, Dean. Is, uh, is Chris Goodman uh, the Antichrist, or is he just Jesus? I Look, I don't know. I don't have any idea. Uh, all I know is that... The idea that the, that Chris Goodman is Decker Hawthorne's foster son just creates a whole another level. There's so many dramas in this series. Really, um, really something to consider. Boy. Oh my gosh. Wait, no, I'm reading more. And there's another character, Robert Milner. Okay, I'm sorry, everyone, but I have to do this. Robert Milner, Milner is a former Secretary General of the UN who served as Christopher's spiritual mentor and moral compass, you know, to Jesus Christ during his early adulthood. <laughs> and remains one of Christopher's closest advisors, confidants, and friends. Milner is approaching 100 years of age, however. <laughs> Due to a transfusion of Christopher's blood, he appears as a vital man in his middle years at the peak of health. He's Christopher's right-hand man in matters of faith and spirituality, so he also has the cells of God running through his veins, making him appear like a normal guy. <laughs> you know, just like Jesus Christ. You know, just like him. Man, um, all three of these characters, I think, in... Uh, pretty prominent ways are probably all featured off of James Bosonier just in his life, his own autobiography. Yeah, these are like the Jungian uh, archetypes of his personality. <laughs> oh my gosh. What a book. What a book that I've never <sighs> read and I'm going to definitely get right now. 
Yeah, thank God for evangelical adolescence, I guess, at this very moment. <laughs> what a gift. Um, you know, I can't wait till someone... I, Netflix needs to pick this up as a series. Like, Damnation <laughs> is great. Um, I love it as a show, I think. But this is a show I'd really get into, is the Christ uh, trilogy here. Christ yeah, Clown trilogy. Direct- who who would be the good director, though? I feel like it would have to be someone who would just take it, like, way too seriously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the Christ Clown trilogy by... Darren Aronofsky. Yeah. No, you've named something I would watch. <laughs> hey, cool. Uh, so uh, usually on the Magnificast, uh, the other podcast we do, not this one, um, we talk a lot about philosophy and theology, and Dean's really good at that part because he knows about those things. Um, but uh, now the tables have turned, and in this episode, we're going to talk <laughs> about TV, and that's something that I'm extremely good at talking about. Uh, or I'm maybe I'm not good at talking about it, but I'm definitely a published uh, a published expert on this topic. So, Dean, <laughs> let's get into it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us what the show is about, Damnation? Like maybe give an overview of it, and then we'll kind of get into the first episode. Yeah, let's do that. Um, before we do that, I just feel like I need to settle into this, into the mood of the show a little bit. Yeah. Just to switch gears. I mean, we're just talking about cloning. That's the future, but we need to go back. You think about the past. past. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I have. I don't know. I yeah. Yeah. I, what do you got? I got some sand on my desk right now. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a cactus over here. Um, sort of a wild. I just revamped my office in sort of a wild uh, west type of theme. <laughs> uh, I love that you have a cactus because the show takes place in Iowa. I'm sorry. Yeah, I have. We'll, I have. We'll a, back to that. I have a succulent. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a lot of succulents back in the Depression. Um, I've got a nice, uh, tall, tall glass of ice, ice cold moonshine. Uh, you know, I'm kicking up my boots um, on my on my porch, eat, eating one of those long plants that the youths like to chew on. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna edit in some uh, some old uh, some old West sounds right here though too. Yeah, so. e- edit in the sound of just an old rocking chair. Okay, um, now I can do that. And I, I'll uh, I'll spin spin our listeners a yarn Please. about this show, Damnation. All right, so here's why the show is something that's extremely relevant to our interests. Broadly speaking, the show takes place during the Great Depression at kind of the height of the labor movement, and it centers around a really wild preacher named Seth Davenport, and he's so wild that sometimes he quotes Karl Marx. Uh, we'll get into a little bit more about how complicated it is shortly, but just to kind of set the stage, the show takes place in this town that is currently in the middle of a strike, and this preacher Seth Davenport we get introduced to right away, and he has kind of some interesting ethical ideas, you might say, things that people don't expect from a preacher, uh, and there's some some mysterious things going on. Uh, in the first episode, we also get introduced to a number of other characters, but broadly speaking, the show is kind of an excuse to really dive into creating a, a highly fictionalized, but nonetheless very interesting uh, representation of what uh, what the real stakes were in the in, at the heart of the labor movement. You know, what was it like to actually have a strike uh, in say the 1930s? Um, and I think, you know, the show takes a lot of creative liberties. It is definitely a wildly fantastical show. Uh, but as a result, it actually pulls out some realities that are kind of like stranger than stranger than fiction, you could say. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get into some of the themes that come out in the first first episode shortly. 
But the main thing is just to sort of say these are the types of issues that we talk about in theory or through books or with guests on the Magnificast all the time. But Damnation is a really fascinating way of almost like fictionally representing the kinds of things that we're always talking about. It almost feels too good to be true, I think. And I'm glad that we're getting a chance to talk about it. Yeah, totally. Um, so I wasn't kidding earlier when I said I'm a published expert on TV because it is actually like the <laughs> thing that I study. Pop culture is a huge part of my academic career for better or for worse and mostly worse. Um, but what I like about kind of like paying attention to TV at this level is that um, in, I mean, TV shows, especially sort of like in this golden age of television, like prestige TV shows, especially like Damnation, have like a specific worldview and a type of usually pretty heavy handed message that are kind of getting across. So I think that if we um, think about TV shows, even if they are silly or fictionalized or melodramatic, um, as types of like philosophical interventions into the ways that like popular culture thinks about things, it gets kind of interesting. So um, in that, like from that point of view, from that perspective, it's pretty wild that someone would make this like weird 1930s period piece about a communist pastor. Um, so it's interesting um, for sure. So a little bit of background on the show. Um, it's on Netflix now. That's where you can go watch it. It originally aired on USA, but was canceled almost, not almost immediately, but pretty quickly. It was not pulling the types of viewers that USA wanted. Um, there's a lot of mixed reviews about the show. Um, most people seem to think it's kind of um, meh, I guess. Uh, it's got three out of five stars on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, people have a lot of critical things to say about it. Uh, I think that the story, I mean, like the, you know, the, the show itself is pretty well made. Uh, some of the performances leave something to be desired. But uh, what I like about the show is that it definitely does mash up a lot of real life types of things and does exactly what Dean said. It it shows you what a sh like a strike might actually have been like in the 1930s. Um, the background for the show is like a mashup of this thing called the Farmers Holiday Association strike. That was uh, a strike that happened in the 1930s uh, in Plymouth County, Iowa. So that's the Iowa setting and the farmer part of the story of damnation. Um, and then it also kind of brings in a lot of the um, ideas and imagery and just general vibe of the coal miner strike in Harlan County, Kentucky, something that you probably know about if you've ever listened to a Pete Seeger song. Um you know, the, the Harlan County war basically. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, those two, those two strikes or those two pieces of American history end up being a pretty big part of the show. Um, uh, it's, it's also, I mean, like pretty heavy handedly pulling from Harlan County stuff. Uh, when, um, at the end of the first episode, you see the words, which side are you on? And then in the second episode, you get a direct musical reference to that song too. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff going on here. Um, the show is created by this guy who is a really kind of interesting figure too. Uh, his name is Tony toast. Um, he is, uh, <laughs> kind of like a, a interesting literary figure. Uh, he's like a poet. He worked on a show called Longmire if you're familiar. And if you're not, it's whatever. Um, but we found some cool, um, some cool words about, um, damnation from toast and, uh, Dean, you want to read those? Yeah, sure. So in an interview with the, with New York post in 2017, he was asked, how relevant is the plot about the common man battling the establishment today? And he says, I wrote the first two episodes like three years ago, so it would have been 2014. But contemporary history keeps making the show feel more and more relevant. I'm not necessarily trying to do an allegory about the present, but history is very cyclical. There's some core element, elemental conflicts and issues that we keep running into. In a way, the present day almost caught up. 
And I think that's actually a really fascinating way of even talking about why a show like this is relevant. I mean, whatever. Some people don't like the production of it, etc. But what's what's fascinating about the show is the subject matter. You know, I can't think of any other show that is trying to dramatize all the weirdness of the labor movement in such a way that Damnation seems to. Uh, at least, you know, I, I've only seen the first episode so far, so we'll see. Matt has seen the whole show, uh, so who knows? I could be wrong. Uh, but just going off the first episode, I mean, this kind of driving philosophy behind even, you know, proceeding with it that uh, the present day is kind of catching up to something in the past, I think is something that we also talk about a lot on the Magnificast, you know, that history isn't the kind of thing that just happens and then dies out. It's like, full of these these embers that are still burning and it kind of takes some of us to figure out how to like blow on them a little bit and see you know where we could uh could kind of keep feeding those fires or whatever um so i really like what he says about that i mean who knows how deeply tony toast reads about the history of the labor movement and christianity within it and all that kind of a thing um but nevertheless so far anyway uh i am i'm ready I'm down for the ride yeah uh just based on the rhetoric of the show i think that tony toast knows a little bit about what he's talking about man i don't know <laughs> tony toast mm-hmm. seems like he, he's uh he's he knows what's up okay so let's talk about episode one um that's what this entire episode will be about well we're 20 minutes in but that's what the rest of this episode will be about <laughs> so uh i'm gonna quickly read uh an overview of episode one and then we're gonna talk about our big feelings and then we're gonna pull out some of the themes that kind of come out in this episode does that sound good yeah the overview what is it from like wikipedia or something? yeah exactly yeah perfect <laughs> citation needed <laughs> <laughs> i guess we should say i don't know spoilers obviously but whatever yeah for sure um they're not that spoily okay here we go overview a local farmer strike led by the enigmatic preacher seth davenport in holden iowa becomes a powder keg when a strike breaker named creely turner shoots one of the farmer leaders creely turner sounds like a a christ clone trilogy name (laughs) it really does right (laughs) creely turner shoots one of the farmer leaders sam riley in cold blood things escalate when three thugs from chicago try to kill preacher seth and his wife amelia Meanwhile, in Kentucky, a William Burns detective named Connie Nunn is on the hunt for Preacher Seth, whom she believes killed her husband. The strikebreaker, Creeley, turns up at the local brothel and hires prostitute Bessie to act as a secretary since he's illiterate. That is important later. Creeley then kills a second farmer and frames Sam Riley's son, Sam Jr., for the second murder. When Sam Jr. is arrested during his father's wake, Seth decides to confront Creeley and we learn that the two men are estranged brothers. Dun, dun, dun. Seth decides to send a message to the town and Creeley and the town's local banker, Kelvin Rumpel. That's my favorite name in the show. <laughs> Love it. Kelvin R- Love that Kelvin Rumpel is the villain. Kelvin Rumpel is the biggest villain name I've ever heard. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, r- right. Seth sends a message to Kelvin Rumpel when he crucifies Sam Riley's body across the front of savings and trust building in town with a sign, which side are you on, hung around his neck. It does escalate very quickly. Huh? <laughs> From zero to 100 in like two <laughs> seconds in this show. Calvin Rumpel does not know what hit him. He really doesn't. He really has no idea. Um, yeah. Well, that's a great, great overview. Uh, I think they hit all the plot beats. That's pretty good. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that they hit all the, the plot beats, but there's some really big qualitative things missing yeah. from this overview. Like these are yeah, the things that happen too. in the show for sure. Right. But Pastor Seth is, you know, like 
<laughs> very much a Marxist in preacher's clothing. Um, and that yeah. is the, you know, the very first thing you get from him. Well, b- before we get to maybe the specific themes, Dean, what are your big feels, your first impressions about this show? What do you like about the episode? What did you not like about the episode, etc.? Yeah, sure. All right. Um, some things I liked. I really actually appreciate Preacher Seth's character a lot so far. Uh, maybe we'll kind of talk about him in more detail later, but just to kind of bring it out, like, I feel like it would be very difficult to write a character like Preacher Seth in a way that's believable. Um, he, like what you just said, Matt, is literally true. He's a Marxist in Preacher's clothing. That's something that they, they don't really tell you all the details of that so far in episode one, but like the, you know, the idea is obvious. Like he quotes from the Communist Manifesto or, or something at some point. He quotes from um, Theses quotes- to Feuerbach. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, like, he's he's working these kinds of, of lines into his sermons and into even his daily conversations with other people. And I think there's a way to do that that would just feel extremely ham-fisted, but somehow it works in a way that I actually didn't expect it to. Um, I kind of expected to be annoyed by it, and, like, I'm sold. I'm sold that it's a very interesting character. Uh, also, uh, his wife in the show... Um, is really fascinating. We don't really know a whole lot about her yet. I don't even think she gets named in the first episode. Um, at least I don't remember her name, which m- may be my own fault. Yeah, Am- case... Amelia Davenport. She's named, I think. Yeah, okay. She's she's there. Yeah. They, uh, uh, they do have sex in the first episode. Sorry to pander to the carnal here, but uh, they do have typical marital USA. relations. Exactly. <laughs> uh, she's also a really fascinating character because um, she's kind of like playing the role of the preacher's wife for show. Uh, but behind the scenes, she's like, um, I don't know, like poking at like local journalists and really like writing a lot of different weird things uh, like Marxist propaganda under certain pen names. We'll talk about more about that later too. But um, their relationship is really fascinating and I'm I'm into it. I'm really intrigued. Um, also, I guess lots of the themes that get brought out in the show, most specifically the themes of like violence in labor struggle. I think that's what struck me the most. Uh, violence is, is such a massive part of the whole first episode. And I really appreciated it because it's not like just a polite conversation about whether or not workers will go back to work. Like there are people's lives at stake. Their health is at stake. Some people aren't eating. Some people are sick because of the strike. Uh, you know, like there's there's just a lot happening and people die as a result of it. And um, I guess I just appreciate the attention to not not just like taking on the kind of liberal story about the labor movement, um, which sometimes gets told about people just, you know, having grievances and the boss won't listen. And it's just a bunch of crabby folks. But like this is like a life or death struggle. And that is something that's taken, I think, more seriously on this show than any other show that I've watched. And I appreciate that a lot. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Matt? What are some things that you liked? Yeah, I, um, I agree with you. It is kind of surprising that they have this, like, I mean, they could have so easily opted for just like a social gospel kind of reading, but they like went hard, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's not a social gospel guy. He's a real Marxist. Um, or yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like he is at least, I don't know. He never says, hi, I'm a Marxist, but like he is, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that you're right. I think that the the writing for Pastor Seth, at least, is um, pretty well done, uh, for the most part, at least. I, I like him as an actor, even. Um, I don't know what else he's been in. Nothing that I immediately recognize. But um, I think his 
his delivery works like you're right it's not ham-fisted it doesn't seem like too like over the top or too like silly the only times i ever felt like sam uh um the only times i ever felt like pastor seth uh was a little bit like off was when he cussed in church that was that <laughs> yeah, was the one part that, that felt just like so off to me that like um i couldn't really get behind it but still it's fine um i'll suspend my disbelief here um <laughs> and let him make a bit he's he says the f word like that no one would be okay with that to 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 uh defend the show though they say at one point they've been in the town for six months so that's a long time to work up to the f word <laughs> i guess so man that's a lot of sundays that's what how many sundays six times four i'm no mathematician but i think it's enough i've gone to my church for like eight years and i still wouldn't say the f word from the pulpit oh boy <laughs> <laughs> i like it though it's a good show i i think and uh you're right amelia his wife is um a cool character i actually think that amelia is a um a, a more likable character than seth is especially the further you get into the yeah, show yeah. um she is mm. like in a lot of ways the brains behind the operation she's like writing a lot of cool stuff um, and doing the public relations work that he needs uh, that, that pastor Seth needs to be done. Uh, but uh, Seth also has all this other like drama in his background that has to come out later. And it's just kind of t- actually sort of tedious and uh, Amelia <laughs> doesn't have it so much. She's just like a actually good socialist. So um, nice. yeah, I like that about her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I didn't say anything I don't like, but I don't know. I can't think of anything right now. So why don't we jump into some specific themes and maybe that'll bring it, bring some stuff out. Um, yeah. Uh, I feel like there's lots of stuff we could jump to, but I feel like we should just start at the most obvious place, which is Seth's sermons. Yeah. Uh, the sermons are a huge part of the first episode in particular. It really introduces you to the rhetorical world of this Marxist pastor getting up in front of a church trying to really rouse people to the cause of revolution, but couching it all in the language of the gospel. And sometimes it's kind of cynical. Like you can see that he's just using biblical or Christian imagery to, you know, bring people around to like an ulterior motive or whatever. Uh, But there's also a great scene where Amelia, uh, he like makes a comment that's sort of a spiritual witticism or whatever. And she kind of asks, you know, is he really kind of getting, getting too godly on her? And I like that. There's like a real dialectical interplay between uh, using this kind of rhetoric and also maybe even being tempted to believe it. And I, I like that dynamic a lot. Unexpected beauty pleases the Lord. You're actually starting to sound like a man of God. Good. So sure as hell will feel like one. Yeah, same. There's a few parts in the show. Um, I mean, we'll see them as we watch it but uh where he does actually kind of struggle with the am i actually a pastor kind of bit you know like there's a sense in which he plays the part long enough that you know he just kind of becomes that and i think that's cool like um uh tony toast my boy tony he um (laughs) he made a character that uh is actually kind of messy and sort of complicated when it comes to religion and i like that that's fun yeah (laughs) fun and good cool um well so in his sermons uh you do get a lot of sort of, yeah, like socialist rhetoric dressed up in religion. Uh, you get some Karl Marx out there. Um, and I think that this is maybe something I find. Uh, so, so Seth's a, a messy character. It's true. But something that I find kind of like, I, like I, what I don't like about the show is that Seth is not actually just a regular preacher. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think that like, um, that, you know, a lot of the tension in the show comes from this, like this, the just the 
the funniness of like Seth's a preacher, but not that kind of preacher, right? It's always like he's always doing mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. kind of eccentric or weird, and that's why he's like interesting to people in town. And I think that is, I mean, it does make a good character, but it does, um, it does like kind of play into the trope that a lot of conservative Christians have about leftist Christians in the first place that like they are just Marxists in preacher's clothing or something. And I think that is a hard thing to deal with in the show or something that I like, I'm just like kind of, I have an allergy to and I'm always, I don't know, trying to figure out what to make of it in this show particularly. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it does come out. I mean, it, like, it's interesting because the strength of the show is that it takes the social gospel seriously and even pushes it to kind of a hard limit, like even an imaginary limit, maybe. Um, but it betrays the idea that actually there were lots and lots of weird pastors running around uh, like Pastor Seth, maybe not as like hardline Marxist as he is, but, you know, presumably it probably wouldn't be as insane uh, that there are pastors interested in organizing strikes in the 1930s because they had been for quite a long time, right? Like we've talked about on the show before, the way that people remember the labor movement sometimes erases the pretty thoroughgoing Christianity that was part of it, um, not in a definitive way, but in a significant kind of undeniable way. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I think you're right to point out that it plays into a conservative trope and it also sort of challenges a little bit how we remember the labor movement too. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about some like very overarching and kind of like big, big idea themes. Uh, Maybe we can kind of zero in on a few um, really specific scenes in the show and kind of talk through them and like maybe how they express those big ideas. So uh, the show opens with this kind of interesting vignette, like this really cool introduction to pastor Seth, I think, um, so the show opens uh, and Pastor Seth is like, uh, I don't know, I guess like driving and sees uh, somebody in like a farmer uh, just like shooting his shotgun into a chicken coop. And Seth like gets out of his car and is like, oh, man, like what's going on? And uh, the the old farmer is, is just like, I don't know, someone's in there trying to steal my eggs. Uh, so Seth uh, persuades the farmer to um, <laughs> act act on mercy. And uh, there's a funny interchange between the farmer and Seth where, like, uh, Seth has to convince him that, like, you know, if if he doesn't kill the person in this chicken coop stealing his eggs, that he can have eternal life. And then the farmer's like, okay, but, like, what else do I get? And, yeah. uh, and he said, <laughs> I love that he's line. like, well, I'll get you more eggs and, like, buttermilk or something, right? So, uh, I mean, right off the bat, this, like, um, you see this, you see Seth as this person who is, like, um, able to speak the religious language of, like, church and preachers and stuff right but also he understands like the material needs of people especially when it comes to the far- the farmers that are striking with him um anyways this scene unfolds in this kind of interesting way because the person in the chicken coop is actually a young girl and seth like kind of like negotiates her out of the situation um with the farmer um so he like you know ends up giving this girl a ride to this place she lives out in the woods and is like a i guess a homeless person or something um but there's some some other funny interchanges though where uh she asks like you know like what kind of preacher are you like what denomination he's just like pick one you know it's like clearly doesn't matter to him um but anyways uh he explains that he's there striking with the farmers and she says what are you striking against the american economic system (laughs) how you gonna do that by breaking the system's back 
So from that like small clip though, you get to see some of the, like the nuance of Seth's character come out, right? He is a he's a preacher that can speak this like very religious language, but also he's like not pulling any punches to the person that he wants to hear the good news, uh, the good news about. You know, like this girl, he wants her to know that like he's there, uh, striking against not just like the bosses, but like the entire economic system, uh, and that's yeah, yeah. It's a really powerful moment. Um, it's also like. Uh, somewhat uh i don't know it gives you sort of an idea of actually the believable level of grandeur that really did exist in the labor movement like people actually thought that was possible um right this takes place in like the 1930s which is like just over a decade after the russian revolution had already happened so it's pretty fresh history that in fact on the other side of the world people had overthrown the russian economic system uh not not capitalist in the way that the american one was but nevertheless it was possible uh, so you can really see that kind of come to a head in a way that's really, really neat. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's a scene after that where um, Seth just like walks into church. He's like late, apparently, which is cool. <laughs> I don't know, I guess. Uh, <laughs> he gives this like real wild sermon. Uh, and here's a really quick clip of it. Welcome, friends. I'd like to speak to you today about Jesus. Somehow in this modern era of ours, we have convinced each other that Jesus Christ was some kind of respectable man, a figure of solemn authority. But the cops and judges didn't crucify Jesus for being respectable. Well, they crucified him because he was an outlaw, a revolutionary. They crucified Jesus because they were afraid he was going to take power away from them and give it to the poor. Yeah, I love... I love that sermon so much. It's a really fascinating example of that kind of powerful rhetoric. What it reminded me of is this kind of famous poster by an artist named Art Young, who did a bunch of stuff for the Socialist Party and other kind of labor journals and things like that. And it's like, I'm positive that Tony Toast saw this, like surely he was Googling around and saw this poster. And my guess is you have to, but if you haven't, just search Art Young, Jesus Wanted is the poster. Um, But it's this drawing of Jesus and it says reward for the apprehension leading, for information leading to the apprehension of Jesus Christ, wanted for sedition, criminal anarchy, vagrancy, and conspiring to overthrow the established government. And it goes on to talk a little bit more about him being like a professional agitator and just kind of, you know, pulls Jesus into this contemporary history uh, of being a, an anarchist in the labor movement or whatever. And it really just seems like the the kind of imagery that's also being echoed in this sermon. And I think it's actually really masterfully de- well done. You know, as short and brief as it is, it gives you an idea of some of the rhetoric that actually did really happen in the labor movement. Like, it's not just a, a made-up, um, you know, completely ridiculous, like, imaginary thing that a pastor would say this. Like, this is some rhetoric that's floating around um, in, in real-life uh, labor kind of publications and and pulpits even. Uh, And I I appreciated that a lot. That's a theme that comes through throughout. It it really makes the labor movement come to life in a way that that's real and and not just made for TV or something. Yeah, totally. Um, The the second I heard that like sermon at the beginning, it reminded me exactly of the, like the Woody Guthrie Jesus Christ song, you know, like the, it's the the one to the tune of like Jesse James or whatever, but it's exactly that same vibe, right? Like it's all about Jesus, um, you know, uh, coming coming for the poor and like being killed by 
um, you know, the capitalists basically laid him in the grave, et cetera, et cetera. But it is exactly that feel. Um, That song, if I remember correctly, is like after the 1930s, but still it is like an expression of that exact sentiment. Yeah, totally. Um, And also interesting because Woody Guthrie himself, to my knowledge, isn't like a practicing Christian or whatever, Um, but still drawing off of this kind of imagery, maybe in a similar way to Pastor Seth in the show or something like that. Yeah, totally. Um, Okay, let's... Maybe we can talk about um, Amelia Davenport and the Jesus stands beside you when you strike thing. And then yeah, yeah. maybe talk about like the, the big conclusion of the show because we're up to like 40 yeah. minutes or so. Yeah, I guess so. Dang, there's a lot to work out, but we can carry it over. Yeah, um, yeah Amelia Davenport, one of my favorite characters so far. She's great. Uh, one thing that I noticed in the show. So she passes out a pamphlet and then she's also seen writing a pamphlet later in the show. The one that she passes out is called, it's titled A Woman's Places in the Revolution. You don't really get to read it, but they go out of their way to share the title. And it's signed by someone called Samuel T. Hopkins. And I recognized that name, but I couldn't really place it. So I did a little Googling around. And he was a Congregationalist pastor who was pretty famously anti-slavery in the U.S. in the 19th century. And so it's this kind of really interesting thing because I thought to myself, surely this person didn't write this pamphlet, right? When they first handed out. Um, and then later on the, the show shows her writing the pamphlet, Jesus stands beside you when you strike and signing it, Samuel T Hopkins. So she's adopted this pen name, you know, associating herself with the, the history and legacy of, of this guy, this anti-slavery, this abolitionist pastor, um, to start writing, uh, tracts for the labor movement, um, it's a really, really neat scene. She does a lot more things in the show that are that are great, uh, but I love that that little kind of nod that you know Toast has done his homework, or the writers of the show in general have done their homework, trying to situate all this stuff in a real conversation about progressive Christianity. Yeah, totally. Okay, so we've got a lot of the big themes out here. We got Pastor Seth. We got Amelia. Um, let's talk about a few other things though, before we kind of wrap this up. So one of the names that I made fun of almost immediately, uh, in the overview was Creeley Turner. So, okay. (laughs) Creeley Turner is, as we find out in this very first episode, Seth's brother, but they're kind of estranged from one another and we don't know why or like what happened, but they don't like one another and they're very mean and it seems like they want to kill each other, but they don't do that (laughs) for some reason. Um, so, uh, Seth is there as like a labor agitator and organizer and Creeley is there as, um, a, a representative of the Pinkertons. So he's there like trying to, uh, break up the unions. So y- y- with these two characters, like the big arc of the show kind of comes into focus. Like, okay, you have the one brother who wants to, uh, organize the labor unions and you have the other one that wants to, um, break them up. And it's so it's, it's, I mean, okay. Like that's an interesting storyline and like, I'm into it for sure. It's so weird the way that some reviewers talk about these two that, uh, they talk about them as anti-heroes. Like they're both like dueling anti-heroes or that's the kind of trope they bring up. Hmm. And I feel like that's so weird actually, because like, it's clear that Creeley is an anti-hero because like you kind of like him, even though he's a bad guy, but like pastor Seth is just a good guy. I don't know why he's an anti-hero. Um, <laughs> probably that's my own perspective, uh, weighing heavily <laughs> on this. <laughs> he has kind of like a dark past, I guess. And he does murder people in the first episode in self-defense, but nevertheless, yeah. he does kill them like without, without, it seems like much hesitation. Yeah. But also, I mean, it seems like he's done a lot of, 
he's done a lot of personal yeah. work in his life, kind of getting, I don't know. <laughs> Listen, I don't know. Um, no, I agree. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, so the, the, this is like the, the, the thing that comes up in the episode. Um, and it's, it's an important thing, the first episode, because Creeley is there trying to break the strike that's already happening. So um, Creeley um, kills uh, Sam Riley, the like kind of leader of the farmers, I don't know, union or group or whatever they actually are. Um, and he frames somebody else for killing him. Uh, and that's like a big deal uh, because – Creeley again is he's a he's a Pinkerton. He's working on the the side of Calvin Rumple, lest you forget his funny name as well. Um, <laughs> so there's there's the tension, right? So the very end of the episode uh, goes you know zero to one hundred really quick. Uh, Sam Riley he he's dead. Um, his family is grieving. Um, Sam Junior, his son, gets arrested for um, uh, you know uh, f- being framed to kill somebody else. Um, this guy who broke the strike. Uh, who broke the picket line, I guess. Um, but the end of the episode, um, it kind of concludes with this like really dramatic shot of Sam Riley's body stretched the front across uh, or stretched across the front of a bank um, in sort of like a crucified, uh, a cruciform pose uh, with a sign on his neck that says, which side are you on? And it's, um, I think it's supposed to be a really powerful and stirring moment in the show, but to me, it's always kind of confusing. Um, yeah, so it's pretty disturbing. It is extremely disturbing. I mean, like uh, when I say cruciform pose, I mean like literally nailed to the doors of the bank. Um, and I'm not exactly sure like what the goal of this is. So it's not clear like who put him there, but like it's Seth, right? Like that's who put him there. I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the show's narrative. It's clear that Seth did it, but the rest of the, the town the characters wouldn't know or something. Yeah, I guess so. It's just like not clear to me, like exactly what he's trying to say by doing this. And maybe I'm yeah. just like missing, like the semiotics don't hit me right or something, but like it, it's like, um, because if he's trying to say that Sam Riley is sort of like the Jesus of the, of the strike, right? He's like martyred, uh, on behalf of the strikers by the state. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a Jesus kind of figure. It seems like a really wild ass way to get that point across. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, this is certainly a like only in television kind of thing, right? This is where the, the fantasy takes off. Um, no doubt about that. Uh, and I also felt like the, the metaphorics were difficult to fully like they, I guess I feel the same way. They didn't hit me in the same way that maybe the writers had expected. Um, because it, it strikes me as a, a, an extremely clumsy way of sorting out like what's really at stake in Christianity or what's being said in Jesus's crucifixion. I mean, there are some obvious analogies, like both of them are innocent, right? Sam really didn't do anything wrong. And yet he's murdered by uh, a Pinkerton who is kind of by extension, a force for the state, even though he's, you know, a private, whatever, um, privately hired security or something. Uh, but yeah, it's like, all it really does is make me feel like Seth is kind of a, an extremely weird dude, like kind of, kind of gross, um, kind of a gross guy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like you, you can kind of see what they're trying to say. They're, they're obviously putting the, the Jesus imagery in with the strikers. And I guess that's kind of interesting, but I do think it kind of backfires in a way. It's, it's more disturbing than it is insightful. Yeah, I agree. Cause, cause metaphorically comparing Sam with Jesus makes sense to me and is not like, you know, obscene. Um, because right. it's like what people in 
that that's what people like the oppressed people always do is they always find ways to associate themselves with Christ. And I think that's good and healthy and not even a bad thing. But right. to take it on in this other way is like, oh, no, you're out of touch. <laughs> you're Seth. <laughs> I you're, guess it's like... This is why you're the antihero, Seth. You did this really <laughs> weird thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, well, because like they're like uh, Amelia is like washing the blood from his hands at one point. Right. Which is also kind of a weird like I couldn't tell what was going on there. I couldn't tell if it was like a weird pilot illusion or something, which is playing with all kinds of different figures in the, the crucifixion narrative. Um, because Seth has this troubled past and he's trying to get better or whatever. Uh, and there's a way you could read pilot is that way too. And like, I couldn't, I guess I was struggling so hard to make sense of the action that I was, I felt like I was overreaching <laughs> in terms of like the allegory to try to make sense of all of this. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's like, I guess again, I get it, but also I don't, uh, I don't get it at the same time. Yeah. Um, for me on this one, it's a real, it's a real this ain't it, chief kind of moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just such a desecrating desecrating a corpse to own the libs kind of situation. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel good about this one. So, um, yeah, but that's what happens in this episode. So we have all these characters introduced. We got Seth. We got Amelia. They're at a church. They're uh, secret communists. Um, we got Creeley, and he's a Pinkerton, and also uh, Mr. Rumple, whose name is still the funniest thing I've ever heard. Um, anyway, so all these people are, are out here. There's a few other folks that will become uh, extremely important later on, like Connie Nunn, uh, who uh, is not a Pinkerton, but uh, part of a part of the William Burns Detective Agency, which is basically the same thing as the Pinkertons. But uh, anyways, um, these characters all will come out kind of later, and the story evolves in this really interesting way. So, um, cool. Dean, what are your, what are your concluding thoughts about the show? Uh, concluding thoughts. Um, hmm. I feel genuinely excited about episode two. I have, like I said earlier, I've never seen the show and I really feel compelled by a few of the characters. Some of them I feel less compelled by, but whatever. Let's see. Um, I think I just have to circle back to some of the points I made earlier. We didn't really talk about this much, but the violence that is just all throughout episode one is something that I think is really, really well done because it's actually not really reveled in. Uh, it's it's shown to be the horrible thing that it is. Uh, not only does Sam Riley get shot, but a bunch of strikers at the mine, the Harlan County uh, analogy there, they all, uh, a bunch of them get shot. And it's, like the chaos of it and the the sheer brutality of capital i think is put on display in a really like important kind of way in episode one anyway um so i'm intrigued by that i'm looking forward to seeing where it goes um cops are really bad in episode one i like that a lot uh i think all in all i would say that episode one though i guess there are some clunky performances it's true uh all in all the the subject matter is respected i thought that that's what i would say it respects the subject matter of the labor movement sometimes it gets a little too fantastical or a little too wild uh but by and large i think it's making some hyperbolic uh scenes in the interest of representing something real and like i said it feels too good to be true i kind of can't believe that even one season of the show got made and uh i'm looking forward to seeing where it goes yeah totally it's um it's you're right it's respectful of the subject matter but it's also like on the right side of it too like yeah yeah um, you know maybe seth and creeley are both like weirdos and they have some uh pretty bizarre like eccentricities but the strikers are the good guys right the farmers are the good guys calvin rumpel bad guy you know from the beginning he's the bad guy his <laughs> name's calvin rumpel like that's it yeah he's done yeah yeah 
Um, cool. Yeah, well, I like the show too, and I'm excited for you to watch the second episode and uh, <laughs> see all the other things that happen. It gets pretty wild. Yeah, um, so I guess this is the, the kind of um, free trial or preview of this uh, other episode or other uh, podcast that we're going to be running on the Patreon. We're still going to do the Magnificast every Friday, uh, but we'll be putting this out as well um, in on the Patreon just over the summer because we have a little bit more time to do some, some talking and, and watching and editing and that sort of a thing. So if you're interested at all, uh, feel free to sign up there. If you're not interested, you can also sign up there and just not listen to it. You're free to do that. We don't run your life. Um, I think we're still kind of finding our feet with it, but I hope that we'll be able to draw out some themes uh, just based on like the research that we've done into the early labor movement in Christianity and really interrogate the show and find out some some themes that we could pull out that help continue to illuminate conversations about Christianity in the left today. And to really like come back to what Tony Toast says in that interview, you know, history is, is cyclical and the present is catching up uh, in some ways with things that have already passed. And in that sense, um, we're going to try to maybe make a few analogies as we go um, and, and really just take this show as a, an occasion for thought. Thanks for listening to the Damnificast, the first episode that there's ever been ever. Uh, if you like what you heard, then you <laughs> if you like what you heard, you you must subscribe to the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast <laughs> because you're never going to hear it again unless you do. Uh, we're holding all of these podcasts hostage until you give us your dang money. Just kidding. If you don't want to, like, whatever. Um, we don't care that much. <laughs> Sorry, that's a bad sell. We're communists and not salespeople. Um, here's the thing. Here's What if we say more about this right yeah. here? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Here's the thing. We don't put podcasts on our Patreon for the most part actually ever we've never done it and the reason is we think that the stuff that we produce is actually like i don't know like when we talk to other people especially it's worth disseminating like we don't want to put that kind of stuff behind a paywall and i think that's why we struggled to like make use of the patreon in a way that rewards people for actually giving us some support which we have have utilized to do so many important things so far um and just talking about a tv show i think sounds like a, a dumb thing but we're trying to split the difference between like something that we feel like should be uh widely um you know like we don't have a right to sort of put it behind a paywall and something that's just kind of like fun and and worth rewarding people who have gone out of their way to support us uh, and continue to do so so in that sense like i don't know we're not like writing it off it's not like we're not taking it seriously um but we're trying to make something that doesn't you know boil down to like a thing that just shouldn't be behind a paywall something that we wouldn't feel good about like i don't know not without sounding pretentious something we wouldn't feel good about not you know making it widely available or something like that yeah how's that for a philosophy of business <laughs> take that to your economics professor and tell them to stuff it uh cool hey so you also might have noticed that uh the music in this episode is a little bit different um thanks pete seeger we stole your music from you <laughs> you did it. um yep so the music's from pete seeger thanks um cool well uh we'll be back next week with the regular old magnificast um and we'll be back with an episode two of the damnificast on our patreon so uh get at that and also don't forget about the book club that's coming up on july 8th so sign up for that you can just sign up for like a month or whatever and then like dip out if you want to um we just wanted to have you know a little bit of buy-in so people take it seriously all right cool well we'll see you next week <laughs>